How encouraged would you be to labor for Christ in the present if you were allowed to see amazing fruit for your labor in the future? Like imagine if you just got a glimpse, if your eyes could only see the future fruit of, say, your private prayer life. How would your prayer life be encouraged and fanned to flame if you got a glimpse of things that you don't see happening now? People that you're praying for to come to know Christ, it doesn't seem that they have any interest in Christ. People that you're praying for to grow in godliness still seem like they're struggling with certain things. But if you got a glimpse, just even a glimpse of some of the fruit of all of those private prayers, how would your prayer life in the moment be fanned to flame? And we understand this in the natural world. In the, in the natural realm, in the natural world, let's say you were training for the Olympics. And let's say all of a sudden you got a glimpse of the future. And whatever sport you were training to compete in, you got a glimpse of the future and you saw that there was a gold medal that awaited you if you stood the course with your training and you stood the course with your laboring in that endeavor. How would your faithfulness to train in the present be encouraged if you knew that that was the awaited future if you didn't faint, but continued on. Doubtless, you'd be encouraged to train hard in the moment because you knew what awaited you in the future. You would likely not think about giving up because you knew that your present uh, endeavors, your present efforts would amount to much in the future. I think God does that kind of thing for his people via the promises of his word. Take, for instance, the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. He exhorted the saints in the churches of Galatia to not grow weary in well-doing. And he told them not to grow weary in well-doing because if they did not faint in due time, they would reap a harvest. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. So the assured harvest of the future was an incentive to stay faithful to laboring in the present. Paul did something similar with the church of the Corinthians. He told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, to be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that their labor was not in vain in the Lord. We'll come right back to that to use another temporal example. Imagine if you were assured for any bit of monetary financial investment that you made in the present, that it would yield an annual return of 1,000%. How willing would you be to take $1 and change it into $1,000? How much of your money would you invest if you knew that that was an assured return in the future? You'd probably say, a lot of it. An overwhelming majority of it. Probably maybe even an unwise amount of the majority I would put towards that because of the assured return in the future. It's kind of the idea here when Paul's talking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15.58. All the investment that they made, every bit of working as unto the Lord, every bit of labor was not in vain. None of it. None of it. And in a similar vein, that's what I think the prophet Haggai and the Lord through Haggai is doing for the remnant of the people and for Zerubbabel and Joshua. Giving them a glimpse of the glorious future that awaits from their laboring in the present. We'll talk more about the people. Um, You remember at the beginning of chapter 2, we basically come to find that the restart of rebuilding, because they had restarted earlier, but this is the restart of rebuilding, it had a kind of inauspicious beginning. It didn't look glorious. What they saw before their eyes was rather disheartening. And the people became discouraged, because externally what they were doing looked disappointing. By the way, it could also look like that in our lives, in ministry. You could do labor for the Lord. You could share the gospel with other people. 
and you're not going to see like an immediate awakening. Like I went and I shared the gospel this week and there was awakening down Highland Boulevard. No, that probably isn't going to be the way it works. It could happen, probably isn't going to happen. No, just telling you the truth based upon experience. It could be disheartening because you can't see the fruit immediately. It was kind of like that for the people in Haggai's day. But God wanted to encourage the people and he reminded them that what they were doing was going to be glorious. Just because it it looked inauspicious, disheartening, and disappointing in the present didn't mean that it was not significant and didn't mean that it wasn't going to be glorious. For the remnant of Haggai's day, seeing that, I think this is important for us to grab, seeing that would require the eyes of faith. They didn't have a picture. Like, like It wasn't like God said, I want to show you what it's going to be. Rather, he gave them a promise. He gave them words. And through the eyes of faith, they had to see what they couldn't see with their literal, physical eyes. They had to see through the eyes of faith. I think of us, if we can, by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, move the mental antennas of our minds. Some of you don't know what it's like to have an antenna on a TV. But years ago, there were antennas on TVs. In some homes, they probably, there still are antennas on TVs. And what you would have to do sometimes, if you got bad reception, right, what'd you have to do? You had to take the antenna and you kind of moved it around. You kept moving it until you got a good reception. And I think for us sometimes, it's like taking our thoughts captive, girding up the loins of our minds, moving, means moving our mental antennas so that we get a good view of the promises that await us. That there is a harvest, our labor in the Lord is not in vain, and so on. And that's what the Lord was doing for the people in Haggai's day. Oh, if you can move the mental antennas of your mind, may the word of God do that today, adjusting them for better reception so as to see God's promises more clearly. Oh, how encouraged you will be in your present building. As we make our way into the text, briefly, let's just create some context. At the beginning of Haggai chapter 2, verse 1, we see that it was the 21st day of the seventh month. Without going through all the details I went through last week, that means that it was the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, a time when the people of Israel would remember their sojourning in the wilderness when they stood in tabernacles or booths or tents. It was also a time when the people would celebrate the ingathering of the harvest. It was a feast that was to be commemorated, Leviticus 23, verse 40, with joy. But apparently, many of the people did not feel joy on this occasion. And the Lord calls attention to why that was. You see that in Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. They looked at the temple they were building, and it looked disappointing. It did not look glorious. And I think here we have a quick reminder for us. They were building a temple that, as we're going to see, was far more glorious than they realized. They just couldn't see it in the moment. And their view of the significance of their work in the present was obstructed by their view of what God had done in the past. They're like, God did something so glorious in the past in Solomon's temple. Look at this. It's so meager and paltry. It's as though it's nothing. And it could be like that with us. Doubtless, there are many people in this place that either have been or are discouraged because they look back at their past labors for the Lord. And they say, what I did for Christ years ago was so glorious. And what I'm doing now, is it not as nothing? Not realizing that it may be far more significant than you could realize. Doubtless, it is. There will be a harvest. Don't fade. Don't make the mistake. Don't make the mistake that they made. Avoid making unhealthy comparisons to the work of God in the past, lest you minimize the significance of God's work through your life in the present. Another note, I want you to see this through the example of the the little lad, the boy who brought Jesus five loaves and two fish. Remember that? 
He brings Jesus five loaves and two fish. And what does Jesus do with that little? He uses them miraculously, right? Takes them and miraculously multiplies the food supply so that 5,000 men, don't forget the scripture says, besides women and children. So you're thinking of a number here around approximately, give or take, 20,000. 20,000 people satisfied and fed. Not people leaving, I'm so disgruntled and disheartened. I wish I would have had more. No, they were satisfied with the multiplication. And it all came from five loaves and two fish miraculously multiplied by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the Lord can do that, can He not exponentially use your present, seemingly meager service in both the present and the future in exponential ways? He can. Quick notes, looking at Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. God, in His compassion, He had words of encouragement for the people. They're making unhealthy comparisons. They're discouraged in the present. So God charges the people to take courage, right? Three times we saw that in verse 4. Zerubbabel, take courage. Joshua, take courage. All the remnant of the people, take courage. Could be rendered more literally as be strong. And what does He tell them? And work. Quitting is not an option. He doesn't baby them. He doesn't coddle them. He tells them, keep working. Keep going. Don't give up is essentially what he tells them. They had gotten about the Lord's business, and the Lord didn't want them to stop. You'll be so helped to take the option of giving up off of the table. If you take giving up off the table, say giving up is not an option. You'll be helped to labor and to be strong and to do the work that God's called you to do. And then he reminded them of his covenant faithfulness in chapter 2, verse 5. He was still in covenant with his people. And he reminded them of that, of the covenant that he had made with them when he brought them out of Egypt and at Mount Sinai. And he reminded them, I'm still in covenant with you, essentially. And he sought to comfort them and encourage them by telling them that he was with them. Think of the significance of that. The temple represented God's presence among the people. It was a place where God particularly and in a special way manifested his presence But God was telling the people, irregardless of the temple being finished, I'm with you. My spirit remains among you. What an encouragement. And I won't go to it and go into it in extended detail, but if the promise of the old covenant was an encouragement to them, how much should the promises of the new covenant be an encouragement to us? That we have the Son of God standing in our place and fulfilling the covenant perfectly that we can never fulfill. And our security in the covenant is rooted in our union to Jesus Christ. So we have a better priest, a high priest, who will never die, whoever lives to make intercession for us. We have a better sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews 10, can never take away sin. But Jesus, with one all-sufficient offering, has put away our sins forever. It's a better covenant in so many ways. Be encouraged. Labor. Do what God has called you to do. But now there's still more encouragement to be found here. He wanted them to know that they were building something far more glorious than they realized. Their eyes only saw what was before them. Reminder for us, you only see with your natural eyes what is before you. But what you're doing and what you're building is far more glorious than you realize. Their eyes only saw what's before them. They lacked God's vantage point. The temple they were building in an act of obedience to God and for the pleasure of God, Haggai chapter 1 verse 8, would be even more glorious than the temple of Solomon's day. Now think about that. God's, just a quick note here and then we'll get right into the text. God's perspective, and you might even say God's incentives, are meant to smother discouragement. I don't know if you ever had like, you know, a little fire start somewhere in the kitchen or something like that. And what do you immediately try to do when that fire just starts to rage, or not rage, but it starts to show itself? You try to smother it immediately. 
Well, if you start feeling discouragement, I want to encourage you to smother it with God's perspective and God's incentives. God's vantage point is much broader and bigger than yours and mine. And it's meant to encourage us and his incentives to keep laboring are meant to smother discouragement and they're meant to fan the flames of encouragement. We'll see how the Lord did that for the people in Haggai's day. And by extension, we'll see how he does it for us. We begin in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, where we read, For thus says the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of armies, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea, and dry land. So first we notice that this verse begins with the word for. That connects it with what has been previously stated in the previous verse. Most immediately, we know God had told the people to not fear. So what comes here in verse 6, as well as the verses that follow, 7 through 9, is meant to be an encouragement to the people. The God who was telling them to be strong in work, verse 4, the God who was assuring them that he was still in covenant with them and that his presence abided with them, verse 5, was the God who was essentially telling them in language like this in verse 6, I am sovereign. I am in control. I am the God in such sovereign control that I can shake the heaven and the earth and the sea and the dry land whenever I please, and I will once more in a little while. So there... They were to be encouraged by the reality of God's sovereignty. More about that as we go forward. We'll see that continue to resound in these verses. Second, I want you to see the introductory phrase. After the word for, look what comes next in verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts. This was a reminder to Haggai, uh, Haggai's hearers and Haggai's readers, even as it should be to us, that this wasn't a Haggai-inspired pep talk. This was a message from Yahweh from Yahweh of armies. I think God wanted to drive home this point because if you look at verses 6 through 9, you see this kind of expression used five times in four verses. It's as though he wanted to drive home to the people, this is my message. This is my message. I think we should be thinking about that when we hear the word of God preached and proclaimed to us, right? When we hear the word of God read, when we hear it proclaimed, we are to think this is God's message. It's not the word of men. I am to receive it as it is in truth, the word of God. So God encouraged them along those lines. And then we come to the beginning of this additional reason for encouragement. God gave them encouragement in verse 4, instruction, gave them encouragement in verse 5, and now you've got additional encouragement coming in verses 6 through 9. Here's the beginning of it. Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea, and dry land. Now since the Lord was speaking to the people about how he covenanted with them when they came out of Egypt. We saw that in verse 5. The historical antecedent for this shaking appears to be most immediately what happened at Mount Sinai. In Mount Sinai, remember when the Lord came down upon the mountain, Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, the Mount Sinai was, was covered in fire. Smoke ascended like a furnace. And we're told in Exodus 19, verse 18, the whole mountain quaked violently. Now, there's more that can be said about this shaking. When you see language like that, this shaking often results from God's presence. We see that oftentimes in the scriptures. It's typical of creation's reaction to the creator's intervention. We saw that in our study of Psalm 18, using these, these historical antecedents. David basically said, it was like the exodus when Yahweh swooped in and rescued me. It's as though creation started to shake when the Creator intervened. That kind of language, in a general sense, 
spoke of Yahweh's intervention. And in a general sense, that's the idea here. Yahweh saying, I am going to intervene. And when I intervene, things are going to shake. It's worth noting that the writer of Hebrews quotes Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. The only verse from the book of the prophet Haggai that's quoted in the New Testament is the verse we just went through, Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. Um, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, we read, And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Now, the writer of Hebrews, if we were to study verse by verse through Hebrews, we'd essentially see that the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 28, but then you can go back and you can see a little bit more of the context as well, he's making a lesser to the greater argument, saying that the God who shook Sinai, that God whose voice shook Sinai, whose presence shook Sinai, he's going to shake the entire cosmos, the earth and the heavenly bodies, as he brings in his kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the idea of Hebrews 12, verses 26 through 28. Shaking accompanied God's speech and presence at Sinai, Exodus 19:18. Shaking will accompany Jesus' return. Matthew 24:29 is just one example of that. And there will come a time when the world in its present form will pass away. And as the writer of Hebrews went on to note in Hebrews 12:27, still talking about Haggai 2:6, he said, "This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So the writer of Hebrews is applying this, so as to say there's coming a time when those things that were created but nonetheless appointed for removal will be removed. There's coming a time when all creation as we know it will be removed. You see that essentially? In 2 Peter chapter, two, uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, the destruction of the created realm, which is followed by the institution of the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21, verse 1. Think of this language. The Lord said in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22, He said through the prophet Isaiah, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make remain before me. So the right of Hebrews is pointing to the ultimate culmination of this reality, that one day he's going to shake everything that can be shaken, the entire created order. And what will remain in that moment? He will remain. His kingdom will remain. And his people will remain. If you were to go through Hebrews, just a little bit of application here, you'd see that one takeaway from this truth One takeaway from the reality that one day the things that can be shaken will be shaken and they will give way to the new heavens and the new earth. One takeaway from this reality is found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. It's not the only one, but it's one of them. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. As though to say, look, this present world as you know it, life on this earth as you know it, the present form of existence as you know it, it's going to give way to something new, a new creation, something glorious. So do not refuse Him who is speaking. Hear Him. If the God who spoke from Mount Sinai shook the mountain, and if He punished the disobedience of those in the wilderness generation before their unbelief, how much more will He punish those, a little bit of the context of Hebrews 12, those who re- and Hebrews 2, how much more will He punish those who reject so great a salvation from the one who has spoken from heaven? 
Hear him who speaks. Hear the one who will shake all things. He has sent his son and he has declared so great a salvation through him. Don't spurn it. Don't neglect it. Repent and receive the good news of the gospel. Believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the grave. How do you prepare for that reality? Now, granted, you know, death may come, right? For so many people before that, reality even happens. But how do you prepare for that reality that the world in its present form is passing away? 1 Corinthians 7.31, 1 John 2.17 speaks of that. How do you prepare? The only way to prepare, knowing that what will remain is our God, the kingdom that cannot be shaken, and the people of the kingdom, outside of the place prepared for judgment, the lake of fire, the way to be prepared is to hear God's voice in the gospel of His Son. To be reconciled to God through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's it. Well, that's the most foundational and ultimate way to prepare. But let's say you are there. I have trusted in Christ. What does that reality mean to me? This reality that everything that can be shaken will be shaken at some point, And the created realm is going to give way to a new creation. How do I react to that as a Christian? The writer of Hebrews tells you. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28. Therefore, since we receive, or as some translations render it, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And there's so much I could say in regards to that, but I want to say this, applying what we've been learning in Haggai. Offering God acceptable service, building your life around God, learning from the mistakes of Joshua, Zerubbabel, and the remnant of Haggai's day, and saying, I want to offer to God acceptable service. I don't want to offer to Him leftovers. I want to offer to Him the main course, the first fruits. That's one of the ways you react to the reality that you are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You know how precious that is? Think of the time in which we're living. living, And the reality that the life and the land in which we're living could so easily be shaken. The economy can so easily be shaken. You know, you think about, you know, the shortage on food. You think about the prospect of nuclear war. You think about the threat of a, you know, an EMP and all these things. Just reminders to us that the world in which we live can so easily be shaken. And God is saying, one day I'm going to shake everything that can be shaken. And I'm going to do it in a final cumulative way, but it's going to give way to a kingdom that can never be shaken. And if you are in Christ, you're a part of that kingdom now, and it's yours to receive when it comes and to enjoy forever. So what do you do? You offer to God acceptable service in the vapor of a life that you have here on earth. You build your life around God and not around yourself. You live a life of self-sacrifice modeled after your Lord who denied himself and took up the cross for us. And you deny yourself and you take up your cross to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve others. And you do it not in some kind of humdrum way, not in some disinterested religious way, but you do it, as the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, 28, with reverence and awe. What an honor that I get to be even a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. What an honor that I get to serve him think I'm receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let's go back to the text. We continue on and we see what the Lord continued to say through the prophet Haggai, verses 7 and 8 read, I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. So the Lord continues to speak. And now he's speaking not only about shaking the created realm, but very particularly he's talking about shaking the nations. 
I will shake all nations, beginning of verse 7. Quick note, this is language that is familiar to the Old Testament. Just to give you one example, reading from part of Isaiah 14, verses 16 and 17, speaking of the king of Babylon, he's described as the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities. So there, in Isaiah 14, the shaking of kingdoms was connected with the overthrow of cities. What the king of Babylon was doing in Isaiah 14 is a kind of linguistic and metaphoric parallel to what we see here in Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. Note, you're going to see language like this at the end of Haggai as well. Haggai chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. We'll talk more about that when we get there, Lord willing. But I want you to see this. Here, contextually, this is what I want you to see. Big takeaway. God was going to shake nations so as to fill his temple with glory. Big idea, big takeaway. I'm going to shake the nations. And as a result of my shaking of the nations, treasures from the nations are going to come and they're going to fill this house with glory. You see that in the next phrase rendered as this. They will come with the wealth of nations. Now that phrase, that little phrase right there, they will come with the wealth of nations, has been a cause for interpretive debate for quite a while. You essentially have two options, though you can nuance the language a little bit. You essentially have two options for how you could render that phrase. One is as you see it right here, that they will come with the wealth of nations. Or, as it's rendered in some translations, and they will come to the desire of all nations. In the case of the latter, and they will come to the desire, and when you see that in a translation, the D in desire is usually capital, it's directly messianic. Even if you look at this whole passage and you see it as messianic as a whole, if you take that phrase to be the desire of nations, referring to a person rather than the wealth of nations, it's directly messianic. Charles Wesley, in, uh, in the hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Included language like this when he wrote the lyrics, Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing, longing heart. It's also, this phrase, uh, desire of nations, it's part of an often forgotten fourth verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Um, now while there are points, I'm not going to go into this in extended detail, while there are points to support that rendering, the desire of nations, uh, referring directly to the Messiah, I think the... Uh, the view that we have here in our text is the better one. I think there's more going against the directly messianic view um, than there is for it. So here are some reasons for that. The context, I think the context of these verses seems to support the material wealth view. Because you look right in the next verse, the next verse the Lord says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. The idea appears to be that Yahweh is saying, I will provide for the beautification of this temple. I'm going to shake all nations. They're going to come with the wealth of nations. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. You may be so disappointed with what you see with your own eyes, but the time is coming when I will bring the supplies that are needed and I will beautify this temple. I think contextually that's what's going on. Furthermore, another point, the verb for come, they will come with the wealth of nations, is plural. We would expect a singular verb if it was referring to, say, a singular person. The word wealth could be singular because it's taken in a collective sense, and it makes sense that you would have a plural verb there, and that would make sense. Not to mention, there could be supplementary points that are made. Desire of nations. Why do the nations rage? And the heathen plot in vain? 
right? The, the, people, like, the people are depicted in the scriptures as loving darkness rather than light and raging against Christ, right? Psalm 53 talks about there was nothing in him that we would desire him and so on. And so you got supplementary reasons to think, I don't think the desire of nations referring to Christ specifically in that sense is what's in view here. I think the material view uh, as we see in our text, I will shake all nations and it will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts, is the right way to understand this. Takeaways in light of that for them and us. God was essentially telling the people, don't worry about what you don't have. Do what you've been called to do. Sometimes we can get so discouraged with what we don't have. I would serve Christ more if I had this. I don't have this, therefore I'm discouraged. I'm going to sit on the sidelines. I'm going to be discouraged. I'm going to put myself in the ditch and I'm going to wait for the stuff that I want to come to do what I want to do to come. Don't think like that. God told the people, you go up to the mountain and get what? Get timber. He didn't tell them to get gold, silver, and precious stones. They were to get what they could get. They were to do what they could do. They were to use what they had and then God in his time would bring whatever else was needed at that time. What an encouragement for us. You could start to think, well, I would do more if I had this, and I would do more if I had that, but what do you have before you right now? Just do what God's called you to do. And if you feel like you need more for something else, in due time, if God wants you to do that something else, he'll bring the more that you need for that something else. But that doesn't mean there isn't anything to do in the present. Do what can be done in the present, and trust that the God who's sovereign over all will bring what's needed in the future. I think that's a lesson that the people were to uh, learn. They were to be obedient to God, doing what he said, and he would provide what was needed for the completion of his purpose in his time. Well, here's the big question. You look at these verses, and if you're like me, you can't help but ask yourself, when was this fulfilled, slash, was this yet fulfilled? Now, I want you to see something amazing here. There are, if you will, near fulfillments of this. It's amazing to think of the way in which God fulfilled this in, in multiple ways, working up to the culmination, the culminating fulfillment. Um, first, I'll, I'll call your attention to the sixth chapter of the book of Ezra. There we read that King Darius, remember King Darius, the one that we were introduced to in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1? We read that he basically searched the archives and he found this memorandum, this record of the decree of Cyrus with regards to the, um, the remnant that had made their way back to Jerusalem. And then Cyrus issued a decree that stated not only that the work of rebuilding the temple was not to be hindered, you see that in rather strong language in Ezra chapter 6, verse 7, verse 11. By the way, God taking care of the people's fear of the Samaritans and the people's fear of Persia. You see the language in, in, in Ezra chapter 6. Uh, Darius basically says, if you try to stop them, you're going to be executed. So God went ahead and God took care of it. But this is also what Darius said in his decree. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river, and that without delay. Ezra chapter 6, verse 8. You need resources? I'll provide the resources. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord, and like the river, he turns it whichsoever way he wills. And he happened to turn Darius' heart right to the archives to find Cyrus's decree and then to issue his own decree and to say what the Jewish people needed to rebuild the temple. You give it to them and you do it without delay. But then further, furthermore, later on in history, 
Herod, who had, a, who had an affinity for building projects, further beautified the temple. Remember in the Olivet Discourse um, sections of the Gospels, you, you see the disciples making different references to the temple and the temple precincts, if you will. In Matthew 24, verse 1, as Jesus and the disciples were leaving the temple, his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple, calling attention to their beauty. In Luke chapter 21, verse 5, we see that some spoke of the temple and they said, quote, how it was, or they spoke of, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. The adornment of the temple made it a sight to behold. The pulpit commentary, for instance, called it a vast glittering mass of white marble touched here and there with gold and color. The Roman historian Tacitus called it a temple of immense opulence or a temple of vast wealth. Now you could look and listen to a message that I did on Luke 21 verses 5 through 8. Um, Jesus' predictive and preparatory warnings to see more. About that. So this temple was beautified through the resources that came from Darius. This temple was beautified through the resources that came from Herod and from the Roman Empire, which was gathered from nations, right, in their conquest, right? Persia fell to Greece and then Greece fell to Rome. And from the resources of Rome, it was used to beautify the temple. It is worth noting that the ultimate fulfillment of this with respect to the physical temple, may, may come at Jesus' return. Zechariah 14, for instance, not only describes, you walk through this, not only describes the gathering of nations to do war in Jerusalem. Zechariah 14, verse 2, you see a parallel of that in Revelation 16, verses 16 and 21. Not only do you see the Lord going forth to fight these nations, Zechariah 14, verse 3, just like you see in Revelation 19, Verses 11 through 21. You see the Lord who goes out to fight these nations. He actually stands with his feet on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14, verse 4, paralleling what the implied expectation is in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Follow me. I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> you see that the Lord God is coming with his saints in Zechariah 14, 5. Just like we see in Matthew 25, 31, Colossians 3, 4, him coming with his holy ones. Saints, angels may both be in view. You see the lights go out when he comes back in Zechariah 14. Old Testament book, but again, New Testament parallel. The lights go out when Jesus returns. Matthew 24, verses 29 through 30. Yet there will be glory from Christ. And you see that in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 7. The topography of the land will change and living waters will flow from Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. The Lord will be king over all the earth. Zechariah 14, verse 9, the enemies of Christ will be destroyed in a manner that parallels what we read in the New Testament. You see that in Zechariah 14, verse 12. It connects with what we see in Revelation 19 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And then we come to verse 14, and we're told also that, quote, the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. And where is that wealth going? One possibility, the house of the Lord of hosts. At least some of it. Zechariah 14, verse 21. In Isaiah 60, after the Redeemer is said to come to Zion, Isaiah 59, verse 20. So after Christ returns and Israel enters into the new covenant, Isaiah 59, verse 21 
After that, we see statements like, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you, Isaiah 60, verse 5. And then we see in Isaiah 60, verse 13, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. You look at Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, and there's coming a time when the throne of God will be in Jerusalem. The nations will flow to it. No more are they going to say the ark of the Lord because the ark isn't the big deal. The fact that the Lord is there on his throne, which is what the ark represented, is the big deal. So the ultimate fulfillment of this, at least as it relates to a physical temple, maybe, maybe, in, um, in conjunction with Christ's second coming. A little bit of biblical theology for you, though, just to note. It's worth noting that the temple concept, you get this idea of the temple, God dwelling among his people, right? Um, God dwelling with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, or the tabernacle in the wilderness, or the temple, or Jesus coming and tabernacling among his people, dwelling among the people of God, or the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and we are now the temple of God. You trace this idea of the temple, God's presence among his people, from the Old Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, you find the ultimate fulfillment of what the temple pointed to in the eternal state where there is no temple. But, yet there is. We're told in Revelation 22, verse 22, but I saw no temple in it, in the new Jerusalem. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the presence, the light of God's glory is going to fill up the city. Everything that the temple pointed to, God's dwelling among his people, is going to be fully manifested and fully realized. That temple concept in the New Jerusalem, God with his people, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Now, interestingly, just to extend this a little bit further, interestingly, in the New Jerusalem, if you read on a little bit in Revelation 21, we're told in verses 24 and 26, this is an important side note just to note, that the kings of the earth bring their honor and their glory into it. And you say, well, what what does that refer to? And I like what Michael Vlock says in his work, uh, He Will Reign Forever, A Biblical Theology of the Kingdom of God. He says, there's no need here to limit glory simply to the nations bringing themselves with no reference to their wealth. We are not told what these contributions are, but they probably involve the best these nations have to offer regarding wealth, art, music, architecture, agriculture, etc. I think it's a good hypothesis. Um, back to Haggai, and we'll see the conclusion of this amazing oracle and this blessed promise, and then some closing applications. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay, so this is the last statement of this message, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 through Haggai, and God definitively tells the people, just comes right out and says it, the latter glory of this temple is going to be greater than the former. You think the temple of Solomon is glorious? This temple is going to be more glorious than that. Just to note, and we've talked, we talked about this last week, Herbert Wolf notes the temple in its various forms is viewed as one throughout the course of history. Okay, so how would this temple be more glorious than Solomon's temple? Well, 
note that the resources, the wealth of the nations was going to come in. We see a, a little bit of that in Ezra 6. We see that more with what Herod did, and we see that in the beginnings of the Olivet Discourse. But I think you can't help but note what would happen in that temple and the way in which the glory of God would fill that temple, if you will, in a very unique way through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How glorious it would be that the temple that they were building would be the one in which the glorious Son of God, who is the radiance of the Father's glory, that he would actually enter into that temple, and not just one time. You go through the New Testament, and you could see, one is that Jesus says that he is one that's greater than Solomon, by the way, Matthew 12, 42. And he also said that he is the one who is greater than the temple, Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. And we see oftentimes in the Gospels him showing up in the temple. As a baby, Jesus was dedicated to the Lord in the temple. You might remember, in fact, when Simeon came to the temple by the Holy Spirit, he took the child Jesus in his arms, he blessed God, and he said, among other things, that he had seen the glory of your people Israel right to the Lord. And there were other times in Jesus' life when he was in the temple or in the temple precincts. When he was 12 years old, he was found sitting in the temple, listening, asking questions, and giving answers. You could go on, and there's many occasions that I can give you in the Scriptures. In John chapter 7, Jesus taught in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus, we know, went into the temple and he cleansed it. One instance of that is seen in Matthew 12, 21, verse 12. The blind and the lame came into the temple and he healed them. Matthew 21, verse 15. Jesus said to those who arrested him, you see in Matthew 26, verse 55, I sat with you daily teaching in the temple. And many argue, and I can understand why they would argue this, that one of the reasons, if not the predominant reason, why that temple would be even more glorious is because the Son of God would frequent it so often. How glorious it would be. Whatever physical and outward adornment it would have, and indeed it did. God said it would, and indeed it did. It was the presence of Christ, the glory of God in Christ. Now, so for that reason... Some would argue, and I think understandably, that at the least you have a near fulfillment of what's spoken of here in Haggai chapter 2, 9 because of Jesus' presence in the temple. The outward beautification and then the reality of Christ being there in the temple. Then there's a possibility, again, depending on the details of the way eschatology breaks down um, in actual reality, Herbert Wolf, for instance, noted, more complete fulfillment awaits the second coming of our Savior when nations will bring their wealth to Jerusalem to glorify His sanctuary, a later form of this house. That brings us to the end of this prophecy. The last statement of verse 9 reads, And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. I, I'm so amazed by the, by the multiple ways God can fulfill Scripture. That there could be, I just imagine this in my mind, and maybe it's an imperfect example. I had it in my mind this morning. I'm going to pass it along to you. I haven't vetted it fully. But it's almost as though there's a target for God's prophecy, like an ultimate target. But along, there, along the way, there are other targets that God is appointed to hit, which are, at a minimum, prefigurements of what he's intending to fulfill in completion. Think about it. In this place, I will give peace. And then when Jesus is brought into the temple as a baby, right? Simeon sees him. And don't forget what he says. He, saw, he said that he saw the glory of God's people, Israel. And then what did he tell the Lord? That now he could depart in peace. So right in that rebuilt temple, you have an example of God giving peace through the presence of Christ and through fulfillment of God's promise. 
Uh, peace would be given in, I would say, many ways during the earthly ministry of Christ in the temple, whether it's through his teaching or whether through the healing that he did. The place that's in view here, some say it's not just the temple, but even more broadly speaking, it's Jerusalem, so that's a possibility. But Zechariah 8 provides a beautiful picture of this, that Yahweh would return to Zion and he would dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, Zechariah 8.3. Jerusalem would be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, and the holy mountain. In that place, God would give peace. He has and he will. But let me just encourage you, you don't have to wait until then to enter into the peace of the Lord that he has for you right now. You can receive the gospel by the grace of God, and in a moment you could have peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then through that peace with God that you have positionally, judiciously, you can have practical peace even when it seems like it's impossible. In this place right now, God can provide peace to you. If you are a temple of the living God by the Holy Spirit, in that temple where you are, He could provide peace right now. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Hear Him. Remember, remember, it was said in, in, the, in the opening, um, uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1, he said, The day spring on high has visited us to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let him guide you in the way of peace. He can give you peace right now. You might feel like your heart is just all over the place. Your heart is shaking. Your heart feels like waters that can't be calmed. You have so many things going through your mind and your heart. And here, Haggai 2.9 for you in this moment. In this place, may you receive peace. If you are Christ, you are the temple of the living God. Receive the peace that Jesus is giving to you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let the day spring from on high guide your feet in the way of peace. And if you are outside of Christ, receive the extension of the offer of peace even now. Receive Christ and have peace with God forever. I close with just saying uh, why the people ought to have been encouraged and why you should be encouraged today. God was sovereign, so the people should be encouraged. The people uh, had provision that they needed, and God basically told them that the provision they needed for the task was secured. So God was sovereign. The provision that they needed was secured, and though their work appeared unimpressive, it would be successful. You like that for some alliteration? (laughs) God is sovereign. What they needed was secured, and the work that they were doing, although it appeared unimpressive, would be successful. So first I encourage you, God is sovereign. He's prepared good works for you to do. He's prepared that. Walk in them. If He's strong enough to shake heaven and earth, if He's strong enough to bring the wealth of the nations to beautify His temple, if He's strong enough to make that temple more glorious than Solomon's temple, is He not strong enough to provide you with the strength you need, with the encouragement you need, and with whatever you need to accomplish whatever He has set before you to do right now? Indeed He is. He is sovereign. Second, the provision we need to accomplish our tasks is in our possession, and whatever else we need will be given. Whatever you need to do what God has called you to do right now is yours. You have it. But I think he's called me to do something else that you know, I don't have the resources for right now. Well, then he doesn't want you to do that right now. But whatever he wants you to do right now, it's in your possession. So joyfully do it. Serve in whatever way. Exercise your gifts in whatever way you can. 
And I do want to encourage you this. Don't just do it alone. Learn from the remnant, right? They had to work together. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the remnant, they couldn't just do stuff on their own. They couldn't just go and be like, you know, lone rangers. They had to work together to accomplish this building. So it is with the beautification of the Lord's present temple, the people of God. God's building up his people. He's making these living stones more beautiful by helping these living stones look more like Jesus Christ. Engage in that work. He's beautifying his temple. Yes, he'll complete it when Christ returns and when we get glorified bodies and when we see him as he is and we will be like him. But in this moment, he's beautifying his temple and you get to be a part of it. And you get to do it, not by yourself, but you get to do it with others, even as they had to build the temple together. And third, I want to say this. Although you may feel as though your contribution to the building up of Christ's church is meager, don't underestimate the way in which God may be working through you and through yours and mine, meager, ordinary, and oftentimes unimpressive work. <laughs> like a rock thrown into the river. Think about every bit of labor that you render unto the Lord as though it were a rock thrown into a river. There are ripple effects to your work for the Lord. In the present, and by God's grace into the future, there's a harvest that awaits for the one who doesn't faint. So again, to call attention to Zechariah 4.10, don't despise the day of small beginnings. The church, the temple of the living God in the here and now, that you are participating in building, it's far more glorious than you realize. And one day, you're going to get to see the latter glory of this house, of the people of God, in a way that far surpasses your ability to imagine even in this moment. So keep building. Keep participating in the work of building up the church. Evangelize. Encourage the saints. Because the glorious temple that is the people of God is going to be far more glorious than you can imagine on that day when Jesus returns. Let's pray. Father, thank you for exceedingly great and precious promises. Thank you for the way in which your vantage point of the future fans the flames of encouragement in the present. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we could, by your grace, be reconciled to you. And in this place right now, we can have peace with God. Those who have come to Christ are enjoying it in this moment. Practically, we nonetheless continue to ask you for help, Lord, so that we might enjoy the peace that you've given to us. So thank you for positional peace, but we also pray, Lord, for practical peace so that your people might not be discouraged, that they might not fear, that they might know that you are with them and they are building and participating in a building process that is going to yield a future result that is far more glorious than we can even see in the present. Help us, Heavenly Father, to have the eyes of faith that we need. Help the antennas of our mind to be in the proper place, embracing your promises so as to receive a good reception of those future promises in our mind's eye, as it were. We love you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the, for the significance of our labor in the here and now and the glorious future that awaits your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.